and avoid changing things that we maybe don't want to or have to. Run from confrontations. I don't know about you, but if you like confrontations or you'll do anything to avoid a confrontation, perhaps you run from the truth. Because I would really rather not face up to the truth that I have to go to the gym to do actual running. I'd rather run from that, preferably to the kitchen, whatever it happens to be. Now, I'll be honest, there are times that we should run away from things. Uh, there is a time to run and there is a time to fight. If people owe you money, this is the Balamina man and me, you stay and you confront and you make sure you get your money. If a lion escapes from the zoo and is in your area, you run. No need to be a hero in this. There's a time to run, there's a time to fight. And so tonight I want to talk specifically to the people who are running, but perhaps could be dealing with things better than, than what you are dealing with things. Because running doesn't change anything. You put distance between yourself and problems in theory, but if the problems are in you, no matter where you run, you're going to bring your problems with you. They're going to flare up again. Problems don't, uh, running away doesn't change problems. Um, it doesn't fix the problem. So there are times to run away. There are times to run away though. Um, if you're in a toxic job or in a toxic uh, friendship or a toxic relationship, it is perhaps better to put distance between yourself and it. It's okay to put, your dis- uh, to put distance between yourself and them. Okay, so, so right from the start, we have fight or flight responses. There's a time and a place for both. But let's talk about the runaways. And, and let's start with Jonah. Uh, Jonah's story often gets boiled down to the Sunday school version of the story where a guy says no to God, gets eaten by a fish, uh, realizes I should say yes to God. Um, But actually, the book of Jonah is an amazing study. I I love the book of Jonah um, because when you get into his mindset about things, he's actually really relatable. You know, when you take out the whole getting eaten by a fish thing, he's really relatable. Um, And what I stand, what stands out to me about Jonah is that he never really buys into God's way of doing things. He's always kind of like the reluctant prophet. He's always the reluctant messenger, the reluctant Christian. And there's something about that that kind of really resonates, I think, with a lot of people, including myself, where you think, oh, okay, it's not just me who finds it hard sometimes. It's not just me who needs to get talked into doing things and have to sit down and really uh, wrestle through issues with God. I find that really reassuring that that Jonah is is one of these people who's there in Scripture uh, showing us that. Um, Now... When you go to the likes of Hebrews 11 and you've got this chapter of the heroes of faith, um, sometimes you're inclined to think that a lot of the heroes of faith are all clean-cut superheroes. You know, your Josephs and your Ruths and your Daniels, you know, they're like uh, Superman and Captain America and Wonder Woman, you know, there's just like no flaw in them. They're just amazing. When you get to Jonah, he's more like the anti-hero. He's like Batman, Judge Dredd, Mad Max, those kind of guys who... He's got, he's got this dark side kind of constantly bubbling under the surface. He disagrees with every single thing that he's, he, he's being told to do. Yes, he is one of the good guys. He's just not very good at being good. And I think I, I really like that about Jonah. I like that honesty in Scripture about him. But 
the book of Jonah isn't really where we first meet him. We first meet him in 2 Kings. And what happens is, this is the prequel, the origin story, as it were, for the hero. Um, and, and as you read this, it's telling us that there's a king. He's getting ready for a battle against the Assyrians. And he's, uh, the king has left part of his defense is weak. That he doesn't realize it. His generals doesn't realize it. And, and the Assyrians are actually about to set up a kind of a pincer movement to exploit this weakness. And God, through Jonah, addresses the weakness. They get the boundaries and they defeat the Assyrians. And Jonah becomes a hero. He gets uh, this kind of raising profile, this raising status. He is the celebrity of God's people. And uh, he is the one who stopped the Assyrians. He's the one who saved the day. And Jonah kind of gets this kind of respect. Life is really good for Jonah. And I think if you're going to tell the story of Jonah, this would be the story you would tell. He's the hero. He's done heroic things. He's done brave things. He's won the battles. He's won the war. And yet if God was interested in popular tastes and what would go down well with people, maybe that's the story that we would have read about in the book of Jonah. But but actually we get a very different story. See, in this part, in Jonah chapter 1, he's told, okay, go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. The, the, that army, you know, that place that you just beat, <laughs> yet yeah, now go there and tell them about me. Go there now with a message of peace. Go to Nineveh. And everything that Jonah has built up with his life it's going to go against him as soon as he steps foot into Assyria, never mind stepping foot into Nineveh, one of its biggest cities. And it gets worse. The Assyrians are known for their brutality. They, they, they've done all sorts of crazy stuff, skinning people alive and doing stuff, you know, and it's mental, all the things that happens. And this is the task that's ahead of Jonah. And if you're coming to it fresh, if you didn't know the story about the fish and all the rest of it, then you're probably watching the movie version of it and you're expecting this epic unfolding of a lone ranger kind of guy sort of storming the walls and going for it. And, and it's really kind of epic defiance, uh, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemy and winning the day yet again against the odds. David and Goliath 2.0. Here's how Jonah 1 puts it. But Jonah ran away. Jonah ran away. Sorry, God, that sounds really good. Thanks, but no thanks. I don't want that job. That's not how the story is supposed to go. That's not how the story is supposed to go. But then life rarely goes the way we think it should, right? The book of Jonah is a short book, 15 minutes, even for a slow reader to, to go through it cover to cover. It's not big. And so it doesn't hang around with details, and yet it repeats the fact that Jonah was running away or fleeing from the Lord. Does this sound relatable to anyone? Are you running away from God? Life is good. You're comfortable. In fact, you're, you're happy, which is a rare thing. 
And okay, maybe every now and again, there's this part of you that starts talking about God or starts thinking about God. And all, all you can do is think, well, this is really unfair to start make, making me think about this right now. Life is good. I'm, I'm comfortable. I don't want you to ruin everything. I don't want this message, God. I don't want to be thinking about you right now. I'd rather pick and choose what goes on between us. I like the blessings. I like it when it works out for me. I like it when I get to be the hero. But God, I don't really want the hard stuff. I don't really want you to ask me to do things that are going to cost me, maybe even my life. I don't like going out of my comfort zone. So I'm going to zone you out instead. Now, long story short in Jonah, it's enough for us to know tonight that uh, he chose not to listen to God and he listened to himself. He doesn't just ignore God. He physically tries to run away. God, my plans are better than your plans. My plan for my life is better than your plan for my life, God. I'm not listening. I'm going to run away from what you would have me do. No. Let me ask a really big question. Have you fallen out of love with God? Have you less passion for God than you used to? Maybe you, were, you would have been the one saying, yeah, Nineveh, let's go. We're going for it. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, church, don't know. Right, I'll go Sunday night, and then, oh, Jeff's off next week, so I can skive off next week, because he'll not know, and, and then we can go, and we'll just kind of get through. We'll model through. It's inconvenient, but we'll maybe just do what we, the, as the, at the minimum amount. God, to be honest, we're at the point where I think you're just asking too much of me. With everything that's going on with me, you are asking too much. And maybe, you know, hand on heart, you're genuinely happy that God saved you. You're, you're, you're not denying that. You're not saying you're not saved. You're not saying any of those things. You're just saying, God, you're asking too much of me right now. God, I, I can't do that. I won't do that. And you can't make me. You want me to forgive who? Catch yourself on. That's not happening. <laughs> you want me to invite them over for coffee and, and befriend them, invest in them? I have to. I'm really kind of busy with the cool people. I'm trying to fit in with that crowd. God, you want me to give how much? You want me to sacrifice how much time? Tough. I'm not doing it. You can't make me God. Maybe what you're running from is relatively small, what he's asking you to do. Maybe it's something simple like... Um, Stop illegally downloading things from the internet or hijacking someone's, uh, someone's uh, Netflix account or something like that there. Um, or maybe it's something a wee bit more serious to um, having to admit something to a spouse or confess something to a spouse or maybe dealing with an addiction or something that's more deeply ingrained and it's a wee bit harder just to deal with. God's been asking you to do something that makes you just want to run away from him. Maybe you can identify with Jonah's desire to run away. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's the end of the story then. That's the end of the story for me, me and Jonah. Yep, that's us. We're done. 
We're done. God is not interested in us anymore. He asked us to do something. We said, no, that's, that's the end of the story. Jonah's blown it. I've blown it. God would be better just going after someone who actually listens, who would actually go. But that's not how God sees it. In fact, the rest of the four chapters in the story of Jonah is about God running after the runaway. He says, where are you going? I'm not done with you. I'm not finished with you yet. What are you running from? Uh, Hand on heart. Have you been running from God? Has there been something he's been asking you to do? Has there been something he's been speaking to you about? Or or maybe you've just been trying to really ignore him for the last wee while? Kind of give him just that wee bit less time and space and effort and If we're going to talk about runaways, maybe it's the first thing we need to talk about is what we're running from. That's the story of Jonah. Which takes me to the second runaway. Hagar. Going back to the first book in the Bible, Genesis. Hagar's story is a tough story. Um, Abraham and Sarah, that famous couple in the Bible, they have lied, they've manipulated things in a visit to Egypt. And basically what has to happen is because of Abraham's lies about his wife, they have to get basically paid off to leave. And the Pharaoh is actually saying, look, just take some money, take some stuff, take some people, take some servants, and just go. Just go. And Hagar was an Egyptian servant, um, by servant, slave, that is told, right, you're with Abraham now. You're with him. You go with him. Now, I'm saying that because Jonah had the choice. He had the freedom to shape his choices and his decision-making. Hagar doesn't. She's thrown into circumstances that are beyond her control because sometimes we end up in situations beyond our control. Circumstances develop, and we don't have any choice in it. Now, Sarah can't have children. And she is getting on in years. And so it suggested that they father a child through a surrogate, which was a common custom at the time. And the logic was, well, if my servant has a baby, then because that servant is my property, then what comes out of her is also my property. And so we can have a child through that means. Now, funnily enough, that wasn't God's plan. Marital infidelity is not ever God's plan. Hagar's pregnancy made Sarah jealous. Hagar ran away from the family in chapter 16, uh, only for Jesus himself to appear. Imagine Christ appearing to an Egyptian runaway slave and says, look, listen, running away isn't the answer. You have to go back, give your son that's in you uh, a father figure, go back home, give Sarah your boss, your respect that she deserves. Running away is not how you solve your problems. And so Hagar goes back, she has a child, and Abraham loves the boy. In fact, he names the boy Ishmael. He treats Ishmael like his own, because Ishmael is his own. The problem is, he's not Sarah's own. And a point that's not overlooked by either Sarah 
or Hagar. There's jealousy, there's mixed emotions, there's divided loyalties. It's not a good mix in a home. And Sarah finally has the child that God promised, Isaac, uh, a number of years later. And Ishmael is in his teens at this point. This is where it all gets really, really, really awkward now. Ishmael starts bullying his little brother. He's probably 14, 15, 16. Some people might say even 17. Isaac's about three, so my youngest is three. Imagine someone who's just starting to learn how to drive, pushing her around. Better not be pushing her around. It's just a very messy picture. And so this is Genesis 21. And verses 10 to 13, God tells Abraham, look, your wife wants to send her away again. Listen to her opinion now about this. I'll watch over your son Ishmael, and they're sent away. They're rejected. They're abandoned. They're abandoned. Circumstances, again, are beyond Hagar's control. They are rejected, ousted from the family, outside of their desire or their wishes. And you can't help feel sorry for Hagar. She's not perfect. Of course she's not. She was uh, lording it over Sarah, forgetting that she was still an employee and that Sarah was the employer. She was walking around forgetting that Abraham loved Ishmael. He did not love her. Ishmael gets caught up in the conflict by being a troublemaker. What teenage boy isn't? But all this is because of Abraham and Sarah. The lies they told in Egypt, the, 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 the mistakes that they made, the refusal to trust God and listen to him. And you have to feel sorry for Hagar and Ishmael. You can't abuse people who work for you and then be all upset whenever they give you attitude. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't work like that. So for Abraham and Sarah to kick them out, it feels so unfair to me. I understand why they felt they had to do it, and Abraham certainly didn't want it to happen, but it's God who says, look, it's okay. I will watch over them. I will watch over them, and it gives Abraham that push to start part ways with his son and his mother, verses 12 and 13. And so they set off in a new direction, maybe south, trying to maybe make their way eventually back to Egypt. But what happens? They get lost. They run out of water. And they get to a point where neither of them could go on any further. And we have this, this amazing picture in a horrible way. This 17-year-old, maybe 15, 16, but this teenager who's writhing in pain. He, he is crying out in pain and his mother has to physically leave him. Where verse 16 says it's a bow shot away. It's about half a mile. Half a mile she walks away from her dying son because she cannot bear to listen to her son cry out as he dies. That's how bad this picture is. That's how bad it was for Hagar. Let's not dress it up. And they both seem to be so unaware that of the promise that God made to Abraham. I'll protect them. And then verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? What a question that is, huh? What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Hagar and Ishmael, they're outsiders. They don't belong. They're not God's people. They have no claims on the blessings of his protection. At least... Not in the same way that Abraham's children, like Isaac and Jacob, would know. 
And that's what makes this story so amazing tonight. It's so easy to feel like God would have no interest in us, no awareness of what's going on in our lives. That, well, why would he care about me? Why would he be interested? My situation's so bad, but he wouldn't care. He doesn't want to know. He's busy looking after his own people. He's looking after his own family. But I don't belong to that church. I don't belong to those Christians. I don't be- God wouldn't care about me. Why would he? But the wilderness did not hide Hagar and Ishmael from God. And in Hagar, we see God's love for all who have been abused and misused and forgotten and forsaken. The text reminds us that God hears us where we are, but it's also a powerful reminder that he hears you. It's a reminder that in this world that there are people who are hurting and feel rejected, even hurt and rejected by the church, by God's own people. And maybe that's where you are. You, you've seen here how in Abraham how fallouts and hurts can happen. Families are complicated at the best of times. Maybe your family's hurt you. Maybe there's something that you're just really wrestling with about that. And maybe even it's a church family on all the time where, where Christians are the ones who, who are supposed to be loving and supposed to be forgiven because, hey, we've been forgiven. We, forgiven people should know how to forgive. But how often is it that church fights can be the most brutal sometimes and the most hurtful sometimes? Uh, maybe you're, you're here at AEC tonight because you had to leave the church that you were in because at one point you were hurt. Now, this church has only been going, what, 25 years? Chances are most of you were at church before, huh? And it's heartbreaking for me to see, but isn't this exactly where Hagar is? Abraham, the, the man of God, throws her out. I read this and I see that God hears those who don't belong to him. Hagar wasn't at home with God's people in Abraham. She, she was excluded. She was an outsider. And she was made to feel like an outsider. And she tried to find another way to belong in this world. And where did that get her? Got her lost in the wilderness. And it's a tough position to be in, to desire something so fundamental to life, like, like water, ultimately, and community, and belonging, and to not have that. And maybe that's where you are. You're going through this world, and you know deep down that there's something missing, but you can't quite find your way to that place that you feel that you're supposed to be. There's something fundamentally missing that's so important. You can't put your finger on it. You can't see what's missing. And the answer is God. The answer is God. It's a life that he gives us as a gift, not our reward that we earn through religious busyness. And that's why God comes to Hagar, the God who meets her in chapter 16 is the God who sees. Here in chapter 21, the God who sees is also the God who hears and speaks and responds to her. Listen to the verses again, verses 17 through 19. What troubles you, Hagar? 
Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, and I will make him into a great nation. God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and she filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. What a difference God makes in a situation. There was death. He brought life. There was no hope. He brought promise. There was agony. He brought comfort. That's the gospel. That's the good news that God is the one who brings grace and transforms a life that has been lived out of our own efforts. And he brings new life and comfort and peace and joy that is deeper than just circumstances. Let me finish with a third story very quickly. We've seen Jonah and we've had to ask, well, what are you running from? We've seen Hagar and we say, well, look, you can't outrun God. You can't outrun him. He sees you where you are. And he's there waiting for the invitation to come and change things in your life. Let's finish with the story that, God, that Jesus himself told in Luke 15. Um, it's genuinely one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. I, I love the parables uh, that kind of back on to each other of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. I, I love them. I could spend a lot of time talking about those three parables and how they interlock and, and how they, they teach us so much about the church and, 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 and Christ. But the story of the son in particular is a sad one. Basically, the younger of two brothers says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. I want to cash in right now and get out of this stupid town to get away from this stupid family, to get away from this stupid life. I want to go live my own life. Obviously, a really hurtful thing to say to your father. But the father says, in essence, look, you know what? Go. I don't want you to go, but I don't want to keep you prisoner. Go. And so the son goes and blows the money. We don't know how long it took for him to blow through all the money. All we know is that by the time he got to the end of the money, uh, it was gone, and so were his friends. And he ended up on the streets stealing food from pigs. What does God say to such a runaway? Please come home. Please come home. Run to me. All the son had to do was go to the father. He knows where the father is. And in the parable, when he gets back, he's rehearsing this speech that he's got already. But the father doesn't ask about what he's done. The father doesn't want to know what the money was spent on. He doesn't want to know what's been going on. He probably had a fair idea about what was going on. But he doesn't ask. He doesn't say anything about that. He's simply so glad that his son is back and wanting to be part of the family again. He runs to him. He hugs him. And he says, let's throw a party to celebrate and he gets a new robe and new shoes and a new ring and the fattest calf is killed for good measure why because my son was lost and now is found there's so much joy to be found in seeing him come back and and these gifts that he gives aren't just random things that he puts on uh, but they, they, they symbolize things the robe the ring the sandals they're significant the robe speaks of wealth you haven't blown it. There's, our family has more than enough. The ring speaks of family. It would have carried this family crest, the insignia. You belong to the family. <coughs> the sandals were to remind him that he wasn't a servant because only the servants went around barefoot. How generous. He tried to run away from the father. 
he couldn't outrun the father. Then get him anywhere. And so he comes home. And God then gives him the best that he could give. He puts the robe on. Can you imagine putting your best robe on some pig boy? He still smells like the pigsty. He's filthy and sweaty from a long walk in the Middle Eastern sun. Yet the father says to the servant, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Shouldn't, shouldn't he take a shower first? Shouldn't, shouldn't we bath him first? Shouldn't we try to clean him up before we start putting all this stuff on him? No, no. You see, the father wanted his son to know that regardless of how dirty he is or whatever he has done or whatever his past had and whatever stains and scars he had, he is still his son. He's still loved. He's still accepted. He still belongs to the father. And the father wanted everyone to see this boy as his son something you hear many times from people who come to church and maybe aren't saved is like when I get cleaned up, when I get my life sorted out, then I'll come to Jesus. Like whenever I get all my, my, my relationship sorted out or get my career sorted or get whatever happens to be resolved, then I'll come. You miss the point of grace. If we keep waiting until we are perfect before we come to God, we will never come because the only way to clean up your life is by being washed in the blood of Jesus. And some of you are thinking, oh, Jeff, it was going so well until you said blood. Oh, that really ruined the sermon. Because frankly, it's just a wee bit minging. Why do you have to talk about blood? Well, what we mean when we talk about the blood of Jesus and being washed in the blood means that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we come and we let go of the old life that we had. Much like the prodigal son did in the story, he had to give up that life of living with the pigs. And God gives us a new life, a new start, a new robe, a new ring, sandals on our feet as it were, and it comes through Jesus' death for us. We don't literally wash in blood. It's not a literal thing. But the metaphor is that the blood of Jesus washes that sin away, the stains and the scars of our past, and we stand before God, not condemned, not guilty because we've ruined it, but innocent because we stand clean. We stand forgiven because of Jesus. And it comes from many verses, but... Revelation 1 would be one of the chapters that says, Unto him that has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The idea is we don't clean up our own lives. We can't sort ourselves out and then come to Jesus. Only Jesus can wash us clean and give us that new start in life. Only Jesus can do that. That's the beauty of Christ. This morning we were talking about how other religions kind of are very much based on merit. You have to keep passing these tests to see if the scales will tip in your balance. But Jesus, right from the start, says, no, no, because of who I am, because of what I have done at the cross, you come in through me, I am the door, I am the gate, you're accepted. You're accepted, you're forgiven, you're clean. 
And folks, listen to me. The message of grace says it does not matter how long you've been away from God. It does not matter what you have done in that time that you have been away. It doesn't matter what you've spent your money on. It doesn't matter what you've spent your energies on. It doesn't matter what you spent your Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights doing. It doesn't matter because that is the wonder of God's grace. So listen, there is a genuine, genuine thrill whenever you make your way home. 100%. It's not sort of tinged. There's not an asterisk and saying, yeah, he's home, but you know, he kind of messed up a wee bit. That's not the grace of God. The point of the story is that heaven fully rejoices when people who are far away come close to God again. And listen, some Christians don't really like this part of the story. They, they, They say they do, but they don't because they don't really like the fact that some people make huge mistakes and, and they really mess up and, and then they get to roll up back into the family as if nothing happened. They don't understand grace and I suppose in some part, that's just bitterness on their part. And they need to look at the older son in the story because the prodigal son had an older brother and he stayed there and he worked this whole time. He didn't want to join the party though because he thought his younger brother had burned his bridges and was angry and hurt that his dad would be so excited about him coming back. The first son rejected the father's lifestyle and went off, and that was bad. Let's not pretend it wasn't. But the second son rejected the father's love, and he was just as much a runaway, because he was missing out, and that's worse. Both rejected key parts of the father, but at least the younger brother came to his senses and came back. This older brother wanted to be rewarded for his work. So I've been stuck here doing all this time while he's been messing around. That's not right. That's not fair. Do do you see what's wrong with his attitude? I'm stuck here serving you, Father. Not, you know, I've had the joy of being close to you all this time and he's missed out. I'm just glad he's getting to get to enjoy what I've been enjoying. Or, you know, oh, He's wasted so much time and money. I'm sure he's ashamed. I'm sure that's tough. I wonder how I can help him readjust a life back home. His attitude stunk, and it meant that he was as far away from the father as anyone else in the story ever was. He just didn't realize he was a runaway. But he thought he was missing out. Truth is, at different points of the story, neither son really appreciated what it meant to be close to the father. Now, in the parable in Luke 15, Jesus doesn't tell us how things ended for the older brother. It's kind of left on a bit of a cliffhanger. All we know is that the father says to him, or what the father says to him, and then we're left to wonder how he responds. He missed out. Not because of what his brother was doing, but he missed out because he didn't make the most of his time with the father. Now, here's why I'm saying this to you tonight. Perhaps over the last couple of months or weeks or years, maybe, I I don't know, there's maybe people in church tonight who have got themselves a little bit lost. You've wandered off from God. Uh, Maybe you ran away from God with your tail. Fools be help. Maybe you need a wee bit of help getting back to where you ought to be with God. Fantastic. I'm in no rush away. I'll be here all night and we'll chat Uh, As long as you need to, as you want to, that's no problem. I am here. Maybe some of you have been hurt by Christians. Maybe it's a previous church. Maybe it was this church. 
can I say with as much genuine remorse as I can muster, I am profoundly sorry that you've had to go through that. That should not have ever happened. And again, if you're hurting, you want to speak to myself, one of the elders, we'll be more than happy to talk. We'll try our best to make it right. But I wonder, are you running away like Jonah did? Something that God's been calling you to do and you've been putting it off. Maybe you're like Hagar. Circumstances kind of got beyond you. Nothing you could do about it. I want you to realize that you can never outrun God's love for you. You can't go too far where he can't follow you and reach you. He sees you. He hears you. He wants to change the circumstances for you. And, and bring you water in the desert. Maybe you're like the older son in the prodigal story. You're at church, you haven't really missed much of church. Truth is, you haven't really realized that you ran away from God, that you're not as close as what you ought to be. You've been here, but you haven't been enjoying his presence. pray that tonight your experience will be like the younger son who realized that he wasn't where he should have been. Whatever the reasons, whatever the circumstances, that's not important. The, the point is you realize that you're not where you ought to be. There's a distance between you and God. And you realize that lasting joy cannot be found this far away from the Father. And so can I say, come home. Come running home. Don't run away anymore, but run to God and find, the f- and find that welcome that that young man enjoyed, that embrace that the boy enjoyed. No, no questions, no investigation, no, no uh, in, um, inquiry into what happened, but simply, you are lost, but now you're found. Let's celebrate. That's the heart of the Father. That's the gospel. And folks, look, I'm, I'm here all night. There's tea and coffee down the stairs. I'm not going anywhere anytime fast. If you want to talk, then let, let's talk. We've got elders here and deacons here. We're more than happy to chat to you as best as we can. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up now. We're going to sing one more song, and then uh, I'll come back and close in prayer.